morning. Well, Kristen got me going there because I started thinking, I wonder if Jesus could swim. And then I realized he didn't have to. He could just go for a walk. Or if he did hit his finger with a hammer, what did he say? Anyway. Ben Sternke, who spoke at our men's retreat a, a few years ago, says this about the passages that we're looking at this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Quote, In the midst of the weariness and grief that 2020 has brought, in our trauma and our suffering and our longing for justice and healing, we proclaim this Advent that God has not abandoned us, but is present among us, keeping his promises, planting his word within us to awaken hope and empower us to joyfully proclaim his kingdom of justice and peace in defiance of the oppressive powers that think they rule the world. In fact, that is Ben's good news statement for his congregation this morning. It's a lot longer than ones we usually do. It's a lot longer than ones he usually does. I heard another quote uh, this past week, this one from T.S. Eliot, Eliot, the poet. He, He said this, and I quote, Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. So I'm going to play the role of the mature poet this morning and outright steal some things from Ben Sternke with his permission, which is my way of saying that what he has written and what I think he's preaching this morning, even as I preach, uh, is beautiful and inspiring. Our good news statement, taken from Ben's words, not nearly as long as his, uh, is also the title of the sermon. We've got two things going here. I've stolen for him twice. The good news we celebrate as we focus on Mary, the mother of Jesus, is that God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned us. And, and maybe uh, for some of you, you need to hear that a little differently. God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. That's our good news. That's it. That was good news for the people of God in the first century, and it is good news uh, for us as we come to the end of a very difficult and painful year. God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned you. Over the past three weeks of this season of Advent, we have been looking at the coming of Christ through the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. This morning, Isaiah's prophecies begin to come true. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, a young girl, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a man who was in the line of King David, and that part is important. And this event is known as the Annunciation. The Annunciation. And the line about King David is important, and it's there to remind us of another promise that God made way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, King David wanted to build a house for God, wanted to build a temple for God. Up until that time, God had been worshipped in a tent, a tabernacle. But now, David wanted to do something better. And the prophet Nathan told David, go ahead and do whatever it is you want to do. But then God spoke to Nathan. And God told Nathan to speak to David and to tell him that he is not to build a house for God. Rather, David's son Solomon will build that temple later. God takes David's desire, however, and he, and he does something better with it. He turns it, on, turns it on its head. No, David, you will not build me a house, but the Lord declares, this is from 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And furthermore, he adds, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
Solomon did build a house for God, but in Luke 1, God's promise to build a house for David comes true in a deeper, richer, and more good, beautiful, and true way. The angel Gabriel says to Mary in 1, 31-33, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In the coming of Christ, God keeps his promise to David and every promise he has ever made to the people of Israel or all of creation and then some. In verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, chapter 1. The angel answered, the the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, as we've sat a few times over the last few weeks in, in the season of Advent, the words of the prophets have a context, and they have, they have an immediate meaning in that context. But as the future ripples forward, the words of the prophets take on a, a richer meaning, a deeper meaning, a wider meaning. And now we can add to that the words of the angel Gabriel, and his words also do this. They mean something in the context, but they take on even more meaning as they ripple forward. Today we hear that the one born to Mary will be called the Son of God, and we affirm along with that statement and the title uh, that Jesus was divine. Jesus was, as the historic creed said, fully God and fully human. But that's not how Mary or Elizabeth or Joseph or anyone else would have heard it more than 2,000 years ago. That's not how they would have heard it initially. The phrase Son of God referred to kings and emperors. Mary would not have known at that time that Jesus was divine in the sense that we affirm today. Because in those days, all kings were divine. All kings were sons of God. And Mary, of course, is looking for a king. And you can bet that Herod heard it that way. Herod heard it that way. This child was a threat to Herod's way of life, his power, That's why he had all the little boys two years old and under put to death in the Gospel of Matthew. But the angel means something more than what Mary or Herod would have initially understood. The angel's words are proof that God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned the people of Israel, and his words are a warning to Herod and to all those who think they rule the world. In the end, there is only one who rules the world, and he has not abandoned us. He is growing in the womb of a young Jewish girl. The angel then gives Mary a sign that these words are true, that these words will happen. Her relative Elizabeth, she said, who is well past childbearing years and is unable to conceive anyway, is now six months pregnant. She's experiencing her own miracle. Gabriel then seals his word to Mary, saying, For no word from God will ever fail. And I am the Lord's servant, Mary replies. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary then goes to stay with Elizabeth, and when she arrives, Mary greets Elizabeth, and the baby within Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy at the sound of her greeting. And in verse 45, Elizabeth praises Mary for her faith, and she says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And then Mary bursts into praise to God for his faithfulness to her, for his faithfulness to her people, for all he has done for them in the past and for all he will do again. And we call this episode, this scene, Mary's Magnificat. Magnificat. 
We call it the Magnificat because in the Latin translation of this passage, Magnificat is the first word she says. Magnifies the Lord does my soul. She speaks like Yoda in the Latin. <laughs> Magnify or glorifies the Lord does my soul. She speaks like Yoda. We can't help it. Except when we translate it to English, that goes away. And that word is no longer the first word in the sentence, so it doesn't make as much sense to us. We might just as well title the passage Mary's Praise or Mary Glorifies God. It's all the same. Roughly, the first half of Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, verses 46 to 50, is focused on what God has done for Mary. With verse 50 being sort of a hinge verse that connects us to, from the first half to the second half of her song. Verse 50 hints at where things are going to go in the second half, which is where we're going to focus most of our time this morning. So let's listen again to this first half and hear how it develops. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. The hint, the hint in verse 50 is that the mercy and the blessing that Mary has personally experienced will eventually extend way beyond her. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. It's not just me, Mary is saying. It's not even just the people of Israel. It is for all who fear God. It is for all who fear God. And to fear God does not mean to be afraid of God. It means to revere God. It means to honor God, to worship God, to submit to God because of who He is. It is to give the Creator and the Redeemer and the Ruler of the entire universe the rightful place in our lives. And then in the second half of Mary's praise, she shifts to the people of God, Israel, as the beneficiaries of God's blessings and mercy. And again, it too, the second half also finishes off with another hint of just how far these things are going to go. Verses 51 to 55. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has left, sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The first part of verse 51 is sort of a heading. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Phrases that referred to the arm of God were, were often used to describe God's work in creation and in preserving His people, and especially in bringing His people out of slavery in Egypt in the, uh, the event uh, we call the Exodus. God did these things by the power of His mighty arm. And then, if we listen carefully, we can hear echoes of the Exodus story in Mary's song. And again, a reminder, the Exodus was a powerfully forming event in the lives of the people of God and uh, their identity. It became a paradigm by which they understood their relationship with God, God's commitment to them, God's love for them. It became a filter through which they saw just about everything that happened to them. We can hear echoes of the Exodus in verses 51 and 52. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. In the Exodus, God did exactly this to Pharaoh and his armies. He scattered them, and he brought Pharaoh down from his throne all the way to his death in the Red Sea. 
But God has also lifted up the humble when his people cried out to them. He lifted them up out of enslavement and their impoverished state and gave them a land of their own. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God provided manna, bread, and quail, and water in the wilderness for his people. And then all along, verses 54 and 55 remind us, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. There's a lot packed into that one sentence. Mary sums up God's history with his people. And then she adds a bit of a kicker when she includes at the end Abraham and his descendants forever. By rescuing his people from slavery in the Exodus, God was merciful to Abraham, who came way before, and his descendants forever. In what way? In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made a promise to Abraham, then known as Abram, if Abram would step out in faith and go to a land that God would show him, then in and through Abram and his descendants, whose number would rival the number of stars in the universe, the number of grains of sand on the ground, in and through them, God would bless all families of the earth. Not just the servant Israel, but all families of the earth forever. Or going back to Luke chapter 1, verse 50. Not just the servant Israel, but all those who fear him from generation to generation. All of them will experience God's mercy. These two verses, verse 55 and Luke chapter 1, 50 and 55 in Luke chapter 1, they amplify and they define one another. What God was doing was way bigger than anybody could probably imagine. Mary identifies Israel as God's servant. What did that mean? It meant that they were to be the very presence of God for all the people on the earth. Israel is God's servant in the sense that they were to be, as a people, the very presence of God for all people on the earth. In words that were ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Christ, but initially spoke of God's calling on Israel, God says this through Isaiah in Isaiah 49.6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. And once again, that prophetic word ultimately refers to the coming of Jesus, who is, N.T. Wright would say, the true Israel. But it first referred to the people of Israel. Even better, it now refers to you and me. If we have come to know God, if we seek to follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world, then we too are a light for the nations. Or as Jesus would put it in the Sermon on the Mount, the light of the world. In a sense, Israel was the light of the world, Jesus was the light of the world, and now we are the light of the world. In and through us, God's glory can be revealed to the world, to your neighbors. The people of Israel are a model for us of our ECC touchstone of presence. We too are to be and can be the very presence of God for all people, for our family, for our co-workers, for our friends, for our neighbors. We too are to become agents of change and redemption in the world. Now if it is true that God has not abandoned us, and it is, then the key way God is present with all people, friends, 
The key way God blesses them and shows them His mercy is in and through those of us who have come to know Him and seek to walk in His ways. The key way that God blesses and shows mercy to all people is in and through those of us who have come to know Him and seek to walk in His ways. What did it mean for God to be present to the world through Israel? Initially, it meant that they were to live their lives and carry out their life as a community uh, as an example of God's ways in the world, an object lesson for the world, a light to the Gentiles. The word Gentiles actually is only a word that means nations. It just means the nations. Ultimately, God is present to the world through Israel because the Messiah, of course, comes through Israel. Not just for the people of Israel, but for all who fear Him, for all families of the earth. When Mary sings of the mighty deeds of God's arm, they are all past tense. Everything she says is past tense. Things God has done for them and for her in the past. They speak of the times in Israel's history where God God rescued His people. But there's another reason Mary speaks of these things in the past tense. They will happen in the future. They will happen in the future and they will happen in a far better way. But the work of the Spirit The work the Spirit of God was doing in Mary's womb has already set these things in motion. Mary speaks about things that will happen in the future. They will happen in a far better way. But the work the Spirit of God was doing in her has already set these things in motion. They are as good as done. So, for example, when you speak to someone, you ask them to to do you a favor, if they like you, they might say, consider it done. What they're saying is, I am so certain I'm going to do this thing that you've asked of me. You, you just consider it done. What God will do in the child to be born to Mary is so certain that she can sing of it as a done deal. Consider it done. God has not abandoned us. And in Jesus, the future is already washing back over the present and transforming it. And so it is now up to us the people of God, the light of the world, to practice the future that God has in store for us, to practice the future in the here and now, to live into it as if, Jesus has all, as, if, as if the coming kingdom has already arrived, because in Jesus, it has. In Jesus, the future is now. There are those who thought they ruled the world in Mary's day. There are those who think they rule the world today. In Mary's day, people would sometimes name their children with names that spoke of their collective desperation for justice and liberation, in her case, from their Roman oppressors. So common names like Judah were actually the name of a, of, of a leader, Judah Maccabees as well. And Judah Maccabees led a fight for independence in 166 years before the coming of Jesus. Or the name Joshua also a common name from which the name of Jesus comes. That means the Lord saves. And the name Mary, the name Mary, which in Hebrew was Miriam. We get it in Greek, comes down to us in English as Mary, but in Hebrew it was Miriam. And the name Miriam meant rebellion. Or their rebellion. Rebellion. So there may indeed be a hidden message here, a a hint of something profound and and bold and and dangerous sounding. The the young girl named Rebellion prophesies a revolution. 
the young girl named Rebellion prophesies a turning of the tables. The air around the birth of Jesus was thick with this tension. The, the people wanted to be delivered. They wanted and they needed a Savior, a Messiah, a King, and, and they wanted to be delivered from Rome in a type of new exodus. But Mary's words are not a call for people to take up arms and rebel against the Romans or anyone else. All throughout Mary's song, God is the one who acts. God is the one who does things, gets things done. God is the one who rebels. God is the one who overturns all who think they rule the world. Not us. And this God has not abandoned us. This God has not abandoned you. Not even in 2020. Mary takes the promises God made to King David and, and she expands those promises. David, you remember, wanted to build a house for uh, God. But God promised and said and kept his promise to build a house for David. Now Mary, in her words and in giving birth to Christ, Mary expands that promise to be a house not just for David, a house not for God, a house for all nations. All people. God has not forgotten his promise. God has not abandoned the people of Israel. And God has not forgotten or abandoned you. God has not forgotten or abandoned you. We celebrate the reality that in Christ's first coming, we look forward to the day that these promises will take a giant leap forward when God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth like never before. How shall we respond to this good news that God in Christ has not abandoned us and never will? How shall we respond? We live into the kingdom even now as God intends. And as we live into that kingdom and as we allow ourselves to be transformed into people who are like Jesus in the world, into a community of people who have Christ formed within them, we too can be the very presence of God for all people, for your family, for your co-workers, for your neighbors. We too can announce with enthusiasm and joy and grace that God has not abandoned us. We too can live in a way that demonstrates that in Christ God has made and kept a promise. A promise that is to bring hope for all people and a promise that is also a word of warning for all those who think they rule the world. So with that, I want to invite you to take two steps in response to this good news. First, worship with us on Christmas Eve, online or in person. It's going to look a little different, but we're still going to do it. Worship with us in some way. As we come together to worship the God who has not abandoned us and to celebrate the gift He has given us in Christ, join us as we celebrate God's rebellion, God's revolution, and our deliverance in the birth of Christ. Second, Knowing that it is only transformed and ever-transforming people who can truly be the presence of God in the world, a light to the nations, I invite you to join with us in the way that is best for you, in the way that is best for you as we begin this new series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on January the 10th. Jordan shared about that a bit earlier in the ways that we can engage with the series. The series is entitled, Theirs is the Kingdom, a line taken right out of the Sermon on the Mount. 
It is based on the Sermon on the Mount. The book we invite you to read along with it is James Bryan Smith's The Good and Beautiful Life. But you can decide what is best and most attainable for you in terms of how you engage with the study. Go to ecclife.net slash connect, click on the button at the top of the page that says Good and Beautiful Life and explore how you might engage in our series on the Sermon on the Mount and or along with the book The Good and Beautiful Life. Either on your own, if that is what works best for you, or in a virtual small group. So at this time, I'm going to invite our musicians to come on up on the platform. <clears throat> and as they do, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't really know of a better way to end this morning than by quoting from a very beautiful book entitled Every Moment Holy by Douglas Kane McKelvey. There is a link to that book in your Bible app live events. The, the liturgy, it's a book of liturgies, and the liturgy is to mark the start of the Christmas season. I'm going to adapt it just slightly in a couple of places because it speaks mostly to the home, but I want it to speak to us as a congregation as well. It is meant as a call and response. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is meant as a call and response, but it is also good just to hear it, let it sink in. So we'll let this also be our closing prayer.